Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You have uh, you've undoubtedly heard of Mike Rowe. He's been all over television the last decade, narrating shows like Deadliest Catch, starting his own hit television show on Discovery Channel that was called Dirty Jobs. I, I love that show. It was a great show. One of his most recent projects has been on a, a Facebook-exclusive television-style program called Returning the Favor. It, it's definitely worth watching. If you've never seen it, it's, it's definitely worth looking up on, uh, on Facebook. The premise of the show is very simple. They look for people who are, who are doing good things, and they look for ways to, to tell their story, and they surprise them at the end with some sort of big reveal, whether it be a, a big check or, or some sort of new piece of equipment or, or, or something, something along those lines. That's not necessarily a, a Christian show. It's about, though, what Mike Rowe calls bloody do-gooders. They're just decent folks who are trying to make the world a, a better place. If you're on Facebook, again, it's, it's worth looking up. It's, 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 it's a good, uh, they're usually about 20, 30-minute episodes. They're, 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 good to, uh, they're good to watch. Uh, the idea of a bloody do-gooder, though, is, is certainly an interesting one. You know, it is a grace of God that there are do-gooders in this world who aren't necessarily Christians. In fact, it'd be a pretty, uh, I, think I, I think it's safe to say, it'd be a pretty sad world if the only decent people on the planet we're Christians, uh, because we're, we're becoming more and more in the minority if you haven't paid attention. And so if all that existed in the world who were decent folks were Christians, then, then this would be a pretty scary world to live in. You know, the church has always considered a, an idea of what's called a noble pagan in civilization. Uh, a noble pagan is, is, is somebody who is not a Christian, and doesn't really have anything to do with Christianity, but who simply wants to make the world a better place. You know, there's countless charities that exist with the whole purpose of looking to, to meet basic human needs, simply because there's, there's something within us that, that beckons us to address those needs. As Christians, we know what that something is, though. Now, those who are considered noble pagans would probably quickly deny it, but this is really one of God's common graces, creating within the human heart a clear sense of right and wrong, a, a clear sense of what is just and unjust, and, and a desire to do something about it. Now, over the last six months, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount, in particular, has always been a very compelling word for noble pagans. Many have found the words in the Sermon on the Mount to be, to be good moral teaching. Things like being poor in spirit, loving your enemies. Uh, the golden rule, the command of Jesus to, to not judge. Those are all good moral commands, good moral instructions that, that people across civilizations have, have tended to embrace. You may remember the, the Sermon on the Mount was frequently used by President Barack Obama to, to bring credibility to his, uh, his progressive agenda. Even Gandhi drew on the Sermon on the Mount. He came to the following conclusion. He said, the message of Jesus, as I understand it, is contained in his Sermon on the Mount. 
unadulterated and taken as a whole, and even in connection with the Sermon on the Mount. My own humble interpretation of the message is in many respects different from the Orthodox. The message, to my mind, has suffered distortion in the West. It may be presumptuous for me to say so, but as a devotee of truth, I should not hesitate to say what I feel. Gandhi agreed to the message, even if he interpreted it differently than we might. The problem with this somewhat casual relationship to the Sermon on the Mount is, is multifaceted. Here's the reality. Church, we need to understand this. We need, to, we need, we need to, to celebrate this. We need to declare it. You can't have Jesus teaching without dealing with Jesus. You can't have Jesus teaching without dealing with Jesus. You, you can't pick and choose the parts of Jesus' teaching that you appreciate the most and that you will keep while rejecting others. You might even be able to apply some of Jesus' moral teaching, but you need to understand that the call of Jesus is more than just simply being a good person. It's more than just behaving. It's more than just doing the right thing. The call of Jesus is to take up your cross and actually follow him as Lord, not just listen to his teaching. C.S. Lewis, great Christian apologist and thinker, he summarized this idea in his famous argument that is known simply as lunatic, liar, or Lord. C.S. Lewis said this, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and he is God. So as Jesus concludes his message, as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount, we're left with the only one thing you can have at the end of a good sermon, the response, the invitation. You know, one of the great hallmarks of evangelical preaching is that call to respond to the Word of God. You can teach the Bible, you can apply the Bible, but at the end of the day, the call from Scripture is how your life will be different as a consequence of your encounter with the Word of God. And though in the Sermon on the Mount, we don't see Jesus offering a, a, a formal invitation. He doesn't call the musicians forward and sing all the choruses of Just As I Am. That, that doesn't happen at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
However, it is clear that his audience heard the words that Jesus preached, and they demonstrated a clear response. So what we're going to find is that the response of Jesus' first audience ought to shine light on our response to the Word of God as well. If you've got your Bible, I would encourage you to open to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last part of chapter 7. This morning we're going to look at the end of chapter 7, beginning in verse 28, and work our way into chapter 8, the first four verses. I would invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we read these words, Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. God, thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount and how it has impacted each and every single one of us. God, we would ask now that as we consider the sermon as a whole, we consider the response of the first hearers, that we might respond to the Word of God in a similar way. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. When we consider how to respond to the Sermon on the Mount, the first example given to us in how to respond by this first crowd is this. Our response to Jesus' words should be respect for his authority. Our response to Jesus' words should be respect for his authority. You know, to be fair, we don't know how much Jesus taught that day. We can read through the Sermon on the Mount in a, in a matter of a few moments, but this teaching, this preaching, this sermon may have in fact been an all-day event. It wasn't uncommon in the Bible uh, for these teaching events to take place over the course of, of many hours. And, and though we likely don't have all the words recorded, the words that we do have certainly carry tremendous weight. It's no secret that the words that we have, have have set up a very clear contrast between the way of the kingdom and the way of self-righteousness and, and those empty religious works that were so prevalent in that day. And that first audience, that first crowd, that first group of listeners, as Jesus concluded the sermon, they found themselves not compelled by the by the the pattern of his speech, not compelled by the compelling illustrations that he used. Instead, we're told that they were compelled because Jesus spoke with authority. Yeah, the word that's used to describe the, the crowd is translated as being astonished. Astonished. And if you look at most modern translations, they all choose the word for being astonished. 
You know, what's interesting is you, as you look up the original word, it's only, it only shows up 13 times in the New Testament. And every single time it shows up, it describes the reaction of someone to the work and the word of Jesus. I was trying to think today of things that astonished me. And, and the, I don't know that that, that word is, is used very much in, in, our, uh, in our world. Because there, there's very little that surprises me as a pastor anymore. Uh, somebody said, I've got a doozy for you. I'm like, you're not going to surprise me. I've, I've seen and heard a lot. Uh, but to be astonished by something, I don't know, that has to be something magnificent, something that's, that's grandiose, something that I've, I've never seen or experienced before. And, and in the Bible, that word astonishment is used to describe how, how people respond to what Jesus says. And sometimes it's in reaction to a miracle, but more often the, the way that word is used is, is in response to his teaching, to his spoken word. And the reason given to us here is because he spoke with authority. And we've seen in this deep dive in the Sermon on the Mount over the last six months that Jesus doesn't mince words. There's, no, there's never any doubt of, of, of what, his, what he's trying to communicate, what he means. He, he's not worried about pleasing the crowd. He's not worried about schmoozing with the powers that be. As a matter of fact, he's kind of harsh on the powers that be. Because the fact of the matter is this. Truth is the truth, regardless of how you may or may not feel about it. That's still true today. Truth is the truth regardless of how you may or may not feel about it. And so when Jesus spoke, he spoke the truth, and he spoke with authority. You know, I think sometimes we lose sight of who exactly is talking when we are reading our Bibles. We get in a hurry, and we don't slow down and consider the weight of the words that we encounter. But it would be wise for us when we read Jesus' words to remember that we are reading the words that were spoken by the word of all creation. This sermon preached there on the mountainside was preached by the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. It was the voice of Jesus that brought light from darkness, that brought life from dust, that brought the expanse of the heavens into order. Just tomorrow night... You can go out right after sundown and you can see what they're calling the Christmas star, uh, which is simply the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter and many of its moons to create a particularly bright place on the horizon. And because of its proximity to December 25th, it's being called the, the Christmas star. What's remarkable is that that is a predictable event. It's something that, that, that we can calculate backwards, that this hasn't happened in six, seven hundred years, whatever it's been. We know the last time that it happened, and it's going to happen in our generation, and it's not going to happen again for, for X number of generations. We can figure all this out with remarkable precision because God is, that, that word of creation has put all of this into order so that it's predictable. It operates on systems that we can predict. And when Jesus speaks, it is that word that speaks. When you read Jesus, you're not reading some pandering politician. You're not reading a distinguished professor. You're not reading some glamorous celebrity. When you read Jesus, you are reading someone with absolute authority, and his words are not only significant, his words are absolutely perfect. 
which is why you can't pick and choose his words and only embrace the ones you prefer. Too many people in our modern era treat the Bible like it's a all-you-can-eat buffet at the Golden Corral. You might have been to Golden Corral since they reopened. That place is crowded. I don't understand. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and people are at the Golden Corral. And somebody in the church is hanging their head in shame because they were there this... You know, the Golden Corral is an interesting place because, because there's no rules other than the unspoken rules, right? Uh, you know, the, the unspoken rules. But, but you can go in and you can visit the chocolate fountain. And I think you can probably dip anything they've got in the chocolate fountain. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that anybody polices that. I guess you could hit the sirloin and take that over to the chocolate fountain. I'm not sure. I've never done that before. But when it comes to God's Word, you don't get to visit the chocolate fountain and neglect the salad bar. You don't get to pick and choose the parts that are most palatable and reject the parts that are that cut a little deeper. It's all consistent. It's all same. It's all perfect. You know, in 1820, Thomas Jefferson published an 84-page copy of the Gospels known as The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Today, it's simply known as the Jefferson Bible. We look at that and we say, well, a founding father published a Bible? Yeah, but I would not encourage you to read it. Because Jefferson literally took a copy of the Bible and he took a penknife and he cut out the portions he believed were true and threw away the portions that he didn't like. And so he took those portions that he believed, he pasted them onto the blank pages of this new work. What did he take out? He took out everything that he deemed to be contrary to reason. And so the Jefferson Bible contains most of Jesus' teaching, but it rejects the miracles. It contains nothing supernatural. Jesus never fed the 5,000. He never walked on water. He never calmed the storm. Most disappointingly, the Jefferson Bible ends with Jesus dead in the grave, but with no hope of a resurrection. You know, we owe much to Jefferson regarding our nation, but he didn't help us a lot when it comes to theology. Believe it or not, we actually gave copies of the Jefferson Bible to members of Congress for quite some time in our nation, which may explain some of the mess that we are currently in, uh, if, if you ask my honest opinion. The problem here is that if you only take Jesus at his teaching and you do not receive his authority, then your Jesus will never be able to save you from your sins. However, when you recognize Jesus' authority, you'd be a fool to ignore the consequences of that authority. So because of his authority then, we must recognize and follow him as Lord. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. We're told that when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. It's not the first time Jesus had crowds follow him. It certainly was not the last time that crowds followed Jesus. But they did follow him. But I think it's important to differentiate this crowd from other crowds. Because this crowd is not following Jesus because they got their bellies full. 
There's other places where a crowd follows Jesus because he, he fed them. He met some sort of need. But this crowd is following Jesus because they've heard him teach. He teaches as one who has authority, and they follow him. They aren't pursuing him because of his miracles. He's not done many miracles at this stage in Matthew's gospel. But at this moment, they are following him because they've been exposed to his teaching. They're astonished, not by his miracles at this point, they're astonished by his words. Now again, as we read the gospel, we know the crowd ebbs and flows. Jesus will introduce some particularly hard teaching and the crowd will somewhat dissipate. Jesus fails to deliver as a political ruler and the crowd all but turns on him. But lest we be too hard on the crowd, we need to remember that they're only reacting to limited information. The picture is not fully painted until after the resurrection and after the arrival of the Holy Spirit. But for those who have the whole picture, that would be us. For those who have the whole picture painted for us with remarkable detail and consistency, we have a choice that must be made. If we recognize that we can't only take Jesus' words, or, and, and that we can't only take that which is convenient to us, then we've got a choice to make. Again, we go back to Lewis' argument. You know, he could be a lunatic. Jesus could be a lunatic because he can't say the things that he says and do the things that he does and not be the Son of God. If he's not the Son of God, then he's crazy and he's not fit to be followed. We can close up and go home. If he's not the Son of God, then the words he speaks indicate that he's crazy. Now, people who want to make a case for Jesus as a good moral teacher, they've got a real problem because he can't be a good moral teacher and teach the things that he teaches and those things not be true. Because if they're not true, he's not a moral teacher. He's, a, he's, he's crazy. He could be a liar. He taught good morals, but when it comes to his identity, maybe he was just a charlatan. How can, the, how can you follow somebody in the world who, who offers good moral teaching but then doesn't follow that teaching? How can you affirm the words of somebody who you believe to be a liar about other things? There's a third option. He might actually be who he said he was. He might actually be who he said he was. And if that's true, then every single person has got to come to terms with what that means. If he really is the Son of God, then we've got to come to grips with what that means. And what that means is that he has paved the way for each and every single one of us to be saved by his shed blood as the perfect Son of God. That means that he truly does want to be Lord over your life and over my life. That means that he truly does want to restore all that has been damaged by our sin. That means that if you recognize his authority, you recognize that his words are true, then you also have to recognize him as Lord. He has to be Lord. For if he is anything less, then he's not worthy of our obedience. 
You see, because he has ultimate authority, he demands our absolute obedience. He's either Lord or he's not. And that's a question that everyone must answer. As Lord, everything about his words, everything about his life, everything about his ministry is brought into remarkable harmony. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords wants to make his home in your heart. And he calls each of us daily to take up our cross and follow him. Because here's the thing. Following Jesus as Lord, it involves doing hard things. What exactly does it take to follow Jesus? I love chapter 8, the transition here, because they know more than get off the mountain. Then Jesus shows us what it looks like to follow him. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 2. They're off the mountain, and behold, a leper came right to him, knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So understand what's happening. He's left the mountain. There's a crowd following him. That means literally they're following him, seeing where he's going next. And while they're following him, a leper shows up out of nowhere and kneels before him, which means that all those other folks who are following him are now where? There with that leper right there. Now, I think that in 2019, we don't fully understand the significance of what happens here. But in 2020, I think we get it. Because y'all know what would happen if right now as I speak, the back door slings open and somebody comes in and they're coughing up a lung and you can tell they've got a fever and they declare, I've got COVID, I need someone to heal me. You know how quick y'all would scatter? I mean, there would be, be the parting of the Red Sea in Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. People would be tripping over each other to get away from the aisle that that person chose to come down. Say, I don't want that. So we finally get it. Like, like we understand what this is like. And, and again, I'm not suggesting that leprosy and COVID-19 are, the same, are on the same level. But I think the reaction it would be consistent. Imagine that leper coming out and kneeling before Jesus, and everybody who followed Jesus knew he was a leper. They saw the bandages. They saw the scars. They saw the the skin that was flaking. They saw it all. And imagine the crowd. Woo! I mean, it's like like dropping oil on pepper floating on top of the water there. I mean, it scatters. What's Jesus do? Doesn't take a step back. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, get his mask out real quick. Doesn't get his hand sanitizer. That old leper comes right there in front of him. You'll never see Jesus telling the leper to get away. You'll never see Jesus telling the leper to keep his distance. He's always available to minister to them and care for them and provide for their needs. 
and all those who follow Jesus have to see the example and say, if I'm going to follow him, then I've got to be like him. Which means I've got to care for even those who are the most unlovable. Following Jesus is going to ask us to do hard things. Again, if you don't want it to, that's fine, but it's not Jesus you're following. You're following your own version of, of, of Jesus. That's not Jesus that you're following. I think George Whitfield said it best. He said this. He says, if you're going to walk with Jesus Christ, you're going to be opposed. In our days, to be a true Christian is really to become a scandal. You know, I think over the last hundred years or so, we've lost a sense that following Jesus was, was something hard, was something difficult. But I think that it's coming back into focus with lightning quick speed. The incoming presidential administration has shown its hand. It looks like we're about to face an all-out frontal assault on religious liberty. It's going to be hard to be a Christian. There's going to be people who lose their jobs because of the decision to follow Christ. There's going to be people who aren't allowed to, to wear crosses on their lapels because it is offensive. It's coming, and I think it's coming quickly. For most of our time, for most of our generation, following Jesus has been a very smooth journey. But I think we're about to experience bumps and potholes like nothing we've ever experienced before. Like Whitfield said, true biblical Christianity that truly walks the pathway of Jesus, I really believe it's about to become one of the biggest scandals in our society. And if we haven't taken this seriously before, it's time that we take it seriously today. And we better make sure that we are walking with the Lord as we should and that we're also equipping the next generation to face the challenges that they're undoubtedly going to face. You know, you can't help but think about the Christmas story as a case study for this idea of obedience to the Word. It becomes very clear that Mary and Joseph are remarkable examples for what we're talking about today. For one, they respect the authority of the Word of God. You, 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 you see when you read through the Christmas story that there is that struggle. The angel came and, and brought this news, and so there is this, there is this, this struggle. Uh, Joseph quietly is, is, is deliberating on whether to, 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 to leave Mary. There's scandal there, but, but God has explained to them what is taking place. And so uh, as they work this out, you can't help but recognize that they respect the authority of the words. And secondly, you, you can't help but recognize that they, they gladly submit themselves to that authority, doing exactly what is asked of them. Uh, they, they, they take on the mantle that has, been, that has been given to them, and they take it on with, with, with gladness. Now, again, it, it's, it's, a heavy, it's a heavy burden that they have to carry. Uh, the, the pondering that Mary does of all these things, we're told that Mary just takes all this in and, and stores these things up and ponders them in her heart. But they take themselves, they take that, that, that word that God has given them and they submit themselves to it. But then they also understand the, 
necessity to walk a hard path in obedience to the word. I, I can't imagine the, the scorn that they received. I can't imagine the, the looks that they got. Of course, we understand that it wasn't very long before they were on the radar of a murderous king. They had to take their family to a different nation to escape. It was a hard pathway that they had to walk. And poor Mary had to see her son walk down the journey that he had to walk down, ultimately leading to the cross. She was there when he was crucified. Jesus even handed her off to, to John there at the crucifixion. What a terrible, difficult journey that they had to walk, but they did so in obedience to the word that they had been given. You know, we talk a lot about in church about the idea of fellowship, and the relationships that we have in the body. I think we understand that 2020 has done a lot of damage to those relationships and to the fellowship that we have as the church. Something about Zoom calls and Google Meets just doesn't cut it. But this morning, I want to ask you as we bring our series to a close, not about your fellowship, but about your followship. If you were to take a survey of your life right now in light of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, how's your heart? How's your love for others? How's your prayer life? How's your anxiety, or conversely, how is your trust? But perhaps in summary, I would ask this. How's your righteousness? What righteousness is it that you were counting on that will give you the access that you need to heaven? Are you still counting on your own? Or have you finally figured out that your righteousness can only surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees if you're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. Ultimately, it all boils down to a very simple question. How's your obedience to the Lord? Would you pray with me, please? God, we thank you for opportunity to, to dig deep into these remarkable words that were preached on that mountainside so many generations ago. That probe deep into our hearts and call us to a radical abandonment of self and a radical embrace of Jesus. Lord, there's no way we can encounter Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and still find ourselves in the middle. We either have to reject him or we have to receive him. He has painted for us a picture of what it means to be kingdom citizens and there's no middle ground 
when it comes to that citizenship. We are either for him or against him. As so, Lord, as we consider what it means to follow Jesus, we understand that it affects every aspect of our being. It affects our families. It affects our jobs. It affects our service to him and the church. It affects how we relate to somebody that we encounter at the grocery store. There is no part of our life that is not touched by these words. And so, God, I would pray today that if there are any, either here in the room or at home listening, who've been on the fence, that today they would recognize that there is no fence. He's either Lord or he's not. And if we choose to surrender to him as Lord, we are choosing a narrow path. We're choosing a difficult path. But we're choosing the only path that leads to eternal life. And so God, if there's any who still aren't sure where they are, where they stand, then would today be the day they choose? And so, Lord, wherever our journey takes us, if it takes us to the, to the leper colony, it takes us to the halls of Congress, if it takes us to our home and our family, if our journey takes us to our school, to our place of business, would we go there as the hands and feet of Jesus, following his example and modeling his obedience? We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.